the work here. We would certainly like to have you as a part of our church family. I know the elders here would be more than happy to answer any questions that you might have pertaining to the work of the church here. This morning I said that in light of the lesson, and we talked this morning about the promise made concerning the building of the church, Matthew 16, verse 13, down through verse 19, the passage read a moment ago. And in light of that, I thought maybe it would be good if tonight we spent some time and talked about some of the identifying marks of the church that we read about in the New Testament. And so tonight I want to call attention to some of those identifying marks that we can read about in the New Testament. I want to begin by introducing the lesson in maybe somewhat of an unusual way. Many of us who are here tonight, we own an automobile. If I were to tell you that there is a vehicle in the parking lot with the lights on, if you own a vehicle, it could be you. It could be any of us. But if I were to say it is a GMC product, well, that would narrow the scope some, wouldn't it? And then if I were to say it's not just a vehicle, it's not just a GMC product, but it's a truck, well, that would narrow the scope even more so. If I were to say that that truck was four-wheel drive, again, that would narrow the scope some. The point is there would be some identifying marks that at some point in time would enable us to come to the conclusion, that's my truck. There are identifying marks in the Bible pertaining to the church that Jesus promised to build in Matthew 16, verse 18. I brought to the pulpit for our lesson tonight a copy of the Yellow Pages. The reason I brought this copy of the Yellow Pages is because there is a section devoted to quote-unquote churches. I haven't taken the time to look at all the different churches that are recorded in this book. Whether or not Olive Branch Church of Christ is in this book is immaterial. Whether or not somebody's church is in this book is immaterial. What matters is this. Does the church you belong to, is it in this book, the Bible? You see, there are a lot of churches that we can read about in the Yellow Pages. But the only church that we want to be a part of, that we want to be a member of, is the church that we can identify where? In the Bible. So tonight I want to call attention to some of these identifying traits that are spoken of in the New Testament. I have a series of questions that I want to ask, and I want to try to answer these questions. Every question I want to respond to with a Bible verse. I want to encourage you, please do not take my word for what I'm saying. I am not the authority. But I want you to make sure that everything that I say is found in this book that we call the Bible. If everything that I say is in this book, then we're on safe ground, aren't we? 
Do you remember Peter said, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. I would encourage not only those of us who are here tonight, but I would encourage everyone who has the opportunity to listen to this lesson, whether it be by radio or CD. Take what you hear and follow in the footprints of the Bereans of whom it was said by Luke in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, they searched the scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. Make sure that what I say is found in the Bible. And if it is, then my plea to you would be honor it, obey it. I want to begin by asking this question. As we think about the difference in the churches that are in the yellow pages and the church that is recorded in Scripture. I want to begin by asking this question. Who built the church? Now you might say, well, that's really not that important of a question. Well, it is. Because in Matthew chapter 16, after the apostle Peter had affirmed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus said, blessed are... Thou Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And he said, I also say unto you, that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Jesus made a promise. That promise was to build the church. The question is, did he do that? Well, the answer is yes. So who founded the church that you're a member of? In 1897, there was a fellow by the name of Charles Mason. He founded the Church of God in Christ in the city of Memphis. There are several million people that claim membership in that church. In 1830, Charles Russell founded, or rather Joseph Smith, founded the Mormon church. The church that I'm talking about wasn't founded by Joseph Smith, Charles Harrison Mason, or any other individual. It was founded by the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. Well, how do I know that? Because the Bible said... Matthew 16, verse 18, that Jesus would build His church. Now, there have been those down through the years that have said that the church of Christ, of which I'm a member, and many of you are, the church of Christ was founded by a man named Alexander Campbell. Alexander Campbell was born September the 18th, 1788. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. Alexander Campbell was born in 1788 when the Apostle Paul wrote to the saints in Rome in about A.D. 57. Here's what he said, Romans 16, verse 16. The churches of Christ salute you. What does that tell you? It tells you that the churches of Christ predated Alexander Campbell. I am not a member of the church that Alexander Campbell started. Jesus Christ founded 
the church. It was born on Pentecost Day in about A.D. 30 to 33, nearly 2,000 years ago. Where did the church begin? It began in the city of Jerusalem, just as Isaiah had said in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. He said the word of the Lord would go forth from Jerusalem. Where the church begins, city of Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2. So Jesus Christ not only founded the church, He is the foundation of the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. So Jesus built the church. Not only did He build the church, He bought it. What did He buy it with? His blood, Acts chapter 20, verse 28. The church that we're talking about exists according to God's eternal plan, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. God in heaven decreed that the church would come into existence. Daniel the prophet foretold of the church. He identified it as a kingdom. And when Daniel had the opportunity to interpret a dream by King Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar was the king over the Babylonian kingdom, he spoke of four world empires that would rise and fall in successive order, beginning with the Babylonian kingdom. The Babylonian kingdom would give way to the Medes and the Persians, which in turn would yield to the Grecian empire, which in turn would give way to the Roman kingdom. And so in verse 44, regarding this stone cut without hands, Daniel said, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. The kingdom that Daniel foretold of was the very same kingdom that John the Baptist, the forerunner to Christ, spoke of in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, when he began his preaching. He said, repent, why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus Christ began his earthly ministry, according to Matthew in chapter 4, verse 17, he said the very same thing, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus promised to build the church. He did. Jesus Christ built the church in accordance with God's eternal plan. He bought it and paid for it with His own blood. Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Take heed to yourselves, to all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to feed the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. Now here's something to think about. If Jesus bought the church, and He did, if he built the church, and he did, then it belongs to him, doesn't it? The church that we're talking about doesn't belong to any individual. It belongs to one person, that's Jesus Christ. Why? Because he built it and he bought it. If he built it and bought it and it belongs to him, doesn't it stand to reason that he would have the right, the prerogative, to set forth divine instructions pertaining to how the church is to operate. Well, how did he do that? How does he do it today? Through his word. Do you remember Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18, all authority, all power has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. God the Father said in Matthew 17, 5, when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain in the presence of Peter, James, and John, he said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then he said, hear him. Whatever Jesus has to say about His church, we need to listen to it. When Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, 
He said, but if I tarry long, that you might know how to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, in verse 17, Whatsoever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That means to do it by His authority. So Jesus has the right to regulate the church, doesn't He? Why? Because it belongs to Him. Can you imagine at your home, somebody pulling into your driveway, taking your mailbox down, and putting their mailbox up with your name on it? And then going inside and saying, you know what, I think what we need to do is pull this wall down. And then what we'll do is paint this room. And we'll move that furniture from here to there. They wouldn't have that right, would they? Why? Because it's not, it's not their house. It's your house. What right does anyone have to dictate how the church is to operate when it doesn't belong to them? The church belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. I said just a moment ago, if somebody put their mailbox up with their name on it in front of your house, that'd be an insult, wouldn't it? Now somebody says, it doesn't matter what name you wear. One of the identifying marks of the New Testament church, not only the builder, but what name does she wear? What are the biblical names that we can read about in the Scriptures? Did you know that collectively the Bible speaks of the scriptural designations that are used to identify the called out, that is, the church? The word church in the American Standard Version, 1901, is found 95 times. The kingdom of God is found 68 times. The kingdom of heaven, 32 times. The churches of Christ... One time, Romans chapter 16, verse 16. The church of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 at verse 2. The church of the living God, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Those are Bible names, scriptural names. Well, why should we wear the name of Christ? Because it belongs to Him. When I tell somebody I am a member of the church of Christ, what I'm saying is that I am a member of the church that belongs to Jesus. It's His. He bought it. He paid for it. He built it. It's not my church. I just have the honor, the privilege of being a part of that church. So, collectively, those are names that are used to identify those who belong to the body of Christ. Now, individually... If somebody were to ask you, what are you? You are not a church of Christ. I am not a church of Christ preacher. I am a gospel preacher. I am a believer, Acts chapter 5, verse 14. I am a disciple, Acts chapter 6, verse 1. I am a follower of the way, Acts chapter 9, verse 2. I am a Christian, Acts chapter 11, verse 26. I'm identified by Paul as a saint in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. We are brethren, Colossians chapter 1, verse 2. Those are biblical designations of those of us who belong to the body of Christ. So we talk about the corporate name that we wear, the aggregate name that we wear, and then we talk about the individual name. I am not a Campbellite. I am a Christian. 
I am not a follower of Alexander Campbell. I am a follower of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I'm trying to the best of my ability to live in accordance with His will and His precepts. There is another identifying mark. First, we talk about who was the builder of the church. And as I said a moment ago, take the yellow pages. Pick any church. First, ask the question, who built that church? Did Jesus build it? Then ask the question, what name does she wear? That's important, isn't it? And then you could ask the question, individually speaking, those who are members of that church, how do they identify themselves? What about the organizational structure of the church? Isn't that an identifying mark? Can I, can I not tell whether or not I am a member of the church that I read about in the New Testament? By looking at the organizational structure of the church, universally speaking, who is the head of the church? The head of the church is not residing in Rome. The head of the church is in heaven. Anyone that will tell you there is a head on earth is not following the scriptures. The Bible says in Ephesians 1.22, He put all things in subjection under His feet and made Him to be head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. Universally speaking, Jesus Christ is the head of the church. There is only one head. Not only is there only one head, there's just one body. Jesus died and bought the one body. How do I know there's just one body? Ephesians 4 verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, even as you're called, in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. Well, somebody asks the question, what is the body? He's the head of the body of the church, Colossians 1.18. Biblically speaking, there is one head and one body. Now think about the religious world at large. There are some folks in the religious world, they're going to tell you there are two heads and one body. That's what Rome will tell you. Then there are others that will say there is one head and multiple bodies. What's the Bible say? Shouldn't that settle it? The Bible says there's one head and there is one body. That's it. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the good shepherd. We are the sheep. He is the head. We are the body. It's just that simple. So organizationally speaking, when we talk about the universal church, and that is the church worldwide, Jesus is the head and we are the body. What about in a local setting? Locally speaking, for example, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we read of the seven churches of Asia Minor. I was preaching a lesson one night and I was talking about the one church, and this fellow came to me and he said, you said there's just one church, but in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the Bible says there are seven churches. I said, you misunderstood. There's just one universal church, but there are many congregations. There's just one body. The local church. The local church is under the authority of Jesus Christ. Everything we do in word, in deed, we're to do in accordance with the will of Almighty God. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. 
scripturally organized congregations have a plurality of men who function as bishops, and the word bishops, overseers, pastors, elders, those terms are synonymous. Now, in the religious world, sometimes you'll see the preacher identified as the pastor. And typically what you will read about or what you will see is one man who functions as the pastor and then under him you have a board of deacons. It's not biblical. It's not in the New Testament. They ordained elders in every church according to Acts chapter 14, verse 27. Paul left Titus in Crete for the purpose of ordaining elders in every church, in every city. There are no one-man pastoral systems in the church that you read about in the Bible. So first you ask, you ask the question, who built the church? And then you can ask the question, well, what name does she wear? You can ask the question, what, what kind of organizational structure does she have? Now, elders have to meet the qualifications that are set forth in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Those who function as deacons, they are to meet the criterion set forth in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. So you have elders who oversee the church. Deacons are special servants. They have a specific task that they are to engage in, and they have to meet qualifications set forth in the Scriptures. Then you have members or brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all members. Now, we may have special tasks, special duties. For example, somebody might serve as an elder. Somebody might serve as a deacon. Somebody might lead our singing. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, you have evangelist. I am the preacher at Olive Branch Church of Christ. I am not the pastor. I have never served as a pastor. Now, could a preacher serve as a pastor? Yes, if he meets the qualifications set forth in Titus 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3. But in the New Testament, in the New Testament church, there are no one-man pastoral systems, if that makes sense, and hopefully it does. So think about it. We ask the question, number one, who built the church? Number two, we could ask the question, when was it built and where? Well, it was built in Jerusalem, wasn't it? It was built in about A.D. 30 to 33. So any church that was founded prior to that time can't be the church we read about in the New Testament. Any church that came afterward can't be the New Testament church. Why? Because too late. Then we ask the question, what about the organizational structure of the church? Organizationally speaking, Jesus is the one head over the one body, universally. Locally, you have elders, deacons, preachers, or evangelists, and members. The Bible says there is one body but many members. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And then there's another question we might ask. What are the terms of admission into the church? Now I want you to think about what you hear on television, what you hear in a lot of churches that are found in the yellow pages, what you hear on the radio, what you might hear somebody tell you at the gym, at school, at work, wherever. What does the Bible say? Here's what typically you hear people say. 
Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Receive the Lord Jesus Christ into your heart and you'll be saved. Recite what is typically identified as the sinner's prayer and you will be saved. What does the Bible say? Well, if Jesus built the church and he did, and it belongs to him and it does, doesn't he have the right to set forth the terms of admission into his body? And don't you think it's incumbent on us to make sure that what we do is found in this book and not just what somebody tells us? I hear a lot of folks saying a lot of things about how to become a member of the quote-unquote church or how to become a Christian, so to speak, quote-unquote, unquote, foreign absolutely foreign to the teaching of the New Testament. Now you can search from Matthew to Revelation. You will never, not one time, read of the sinner's prayer. Not there. Never has been, never will be. What does the Bible say? Well, the Bible says that salvation is in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. The only way that we can get into Christ Jesus is by being baptized into Christ Jesus. Now, I know what a lot of folks say. Typically, you'll hear people say, Now, you folks in the church, those of you that belong to the church of Christ, you're so hung up on baptism, that's all you ever want to talk about. Well, let me ask this question. If Jesus talked about it, shouldn't that be good enough for us? I want you to listen to what Jesus said, and I want you to listen to exactly what he said. He that believeth, number one, and is baptized, number two, shall be saved, number three. That is a direct quotation of what the Son of God said. I didn't embellish that. I didn't make it up. It's not something that is foreign. Rather, that's found right in the book of Mark, chapter 16, verse 16. Well, why do I need to be baptized into Christ? Well, you need to be baptized into Christ because outside of Christ, you're lost. And the only thing that will save you is the blood of Jesus Christ. John wrote in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, Unto him who loved us and washed us from our sins by his own blood. Jesus shed his blood on the cross of Calvary. John chapter 19, verses 34 and 35. The only way that I can appropriate the blood of Jesus Christ is by being baptized into Christ so that all my sins might be remitted. Now you think about on Pentecost Day, Peter was given the keys to the kingdom of heaven, wasn't he? He was an inspired apostle. He, along with the other apostles, had received the baptismal measure of the Holy Spirit. And they spoke as the Spirit gave them utterance, according to Acts chapter 2. They said exactly what God in heaven wanted them to say. So when they cried out on the day of Pentecost, men and brethren, what shall we do? What did Peter say? Don't you think it would, it would have been a convenient time to say, now here, here's what you need to do. Just recite after me this prayer. Accept the Lord Jesus Christ into your, into your heart and you'll be saved. But he didn't say that, did he? No, Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? so that your sins might be remitted, so that they might be forgiven, so that they might be washed away. So why do I need to be baptized into Christ? Because Jesus Christ, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And by the way, that word and is a coordinating conjunction. 
And it means both belief and baptism are absolutely essential. Just as repentance and baptism are absolutely essential. So, I ask this question. Does the Lord Jesus Christ not have the right, the prerogative, to dictate how we become members of His body? Now, am I saying that all you have to do is be baptized without anything else? Not at all. You've got to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, John 8, verse 24, because Jesus said, except you believe that I am He, you'll die in your sins. If you're baptized and you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you're lost. You just got wet. Jesus said you need to believe that He is the Son of God. Peter said you need to repent of your sins. God commands all men everywhere to repent. Acts chapter 17, verse 30. We confess the name of Christ before others, just like the eunuch did in Acts chapter 8, verse 37. And then we are baptized into Christ, and we rise to walk in newness of life. Baptism stands be between the sinner and salvation, Mark 16, 16. It stands between the sinner and the remission of sins, Acts 2.38. It stands between the sinner and the washing away of sins, Acts 22.16. It stands between the sinner and being a member of the church of Christ. Because Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, By one spirit were you all baptized into one body. You can't be a member of the body of Christ without being baptized. If you haven't been baptized, you're outside the sphere of safety. You're outside the blood of Christ. You're outside the body of Christ. You're lost. Ephesians 2, verse 12. Verse 13, Paul said, But now in Christ Jesus, you that once were far off are brought near, made near by the blood of Christ. So when we're baptized into Christ, when we obey the gospel, we are forgiven. It is at that point in time that we are said to be what? Believers, Acts 5, 14. We are identified as disciples, Acts 6, 1. We are followers of the way, Acts 9, 2. We are Christians, Acts chapter 11, verse 26. We're brethren, Colossians 1, 2. We are saints of the Most High God, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. And let me tell you what, that's not about it, that's it. That's exactly it. Without fear or favor. I don't have a problem telling anybody that's what the book says. And the day comes when I can't defend this, I'll take my shingle down. That's what the Bible says. That's all the Bible says. Now, very quickly, another identifying mark of the New Testament church is her worship. There are five acts of worship. I wish we had time to talk about these. We don't. First, there is the preaching of the gospel, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. We are to preach the word, not about the word, not something other than the word. We are to preach the word. Why? Because that's what satisfies the hearts and lives of people. Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, Matthew 4, 4. We preach the gospel. And then... We give of our means every first day of the week, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. If you see somebody out on the street corner and they're trying to raise money for, quote, unquote, the work of the church, or they're having a bake sale or, or some type of rummage sale or whatever in the name of the church, that's not what you read about in the New Testament. Identifying marks of the New Testament church, God expects us to give. How? Every first day of the week. That's the when. We give as we purpose in our hearts. Now, sometimes people don't give. If you don't give, you don't worship because worship, isn't, worship entails the giving of our means every first day of the week. 
So there is the preaching of the gospel. There is the giving of our means. There is the partaking of the Lord's Supper. We partake of the bread, reminding ourselves of the body of Christ. We partake of the, of the, of the fruit of the vine, reminding ourselves of the blood of Christ. Paul said, as often as you eat this bread, drink this cup, you show forth the Lord's death till he come again. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26. And then we pray to God. We pray collectively, corporately. And the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. The word for men there is male only. If you go into a, if you go into a church and you see a lady standing before an audience, a mixed audience, and she is leading in prayer, or if she is preaching the word, not the New Testament church. Not the New Testament church. And let me just say this. Some of my brethren that are using women in an expanded role to preach, to teach, to lead prayer, to wait on the Lord's table, they're not the New Testament church. And then there is the singing that we are to do Based on Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16, we sing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. And again, you can go into a lot of different churches. You can go into a lot of the churches you read about in the Yellow Pages, and guess what? They've got a choir. They've got a band. They've got an orchestra. They've got a piano. All of that foreign to the teaching of the New Testament. Nowhere do we have the authority to use mechanical instruments of music in worship to God. Jesus Christ has the, has the right to legislate how we worship Him. Nowhere has God ever told us, you decide how you want to worship, and hey, guess what? That's acceptable to me. And congregations, and I'm talking about churches of Christ, that at one time were biblical, they were sound in the faith. I can tell you about some churches that have brought the instrument in. Let me tell you what, they are not the church of Christ. Why? Because they have left the plea of New Testament Christianity. It's as simple as that. You go into a place, and maybe it has the, the sign out front that says Church of Christ. And they've got women up leading prayer, preaching, preaching, taking a visible part in worship. And you've got mechanical instruments of music being used. That is not the New Testament church that I can read about. It's not there. So what do you do? You go in and you go out. John talks about those who went out from among us. Some folks, they don't like God's pattern. And let me just say this very quickly. I've read a lot about elderships saying that they have been restudying this music question in the church. I heard about a congregation that said they studied it for three years, studying as to whether or not God allows music, that is mechanical instruments of music, in worship. Let me tell you what, it doesn't take three years to restudy that subject. I am not in any way impugning anyone's motives. 
it seems to me that when folks tell you that they're going to restudy the subject, what they're saying is, I want to do this, and so they use that as the banner to bring in what they already wanted to do to begin with. Why not just be honest and say, you know what, we want the instrument, we're going to have it, rather than try to backdoor it. And elders that do that, shame on them. Let me tell you what, they'll stand before the judge of all the earth and give an account. They are the overseers of the church, and when they do that, they abdicate the teaching of the New Testament, and guess what? They're going to stand before the judge, and they're going to cause a lot of folks to lose their soul, including themselves. Can we read about the church in the New Testament? Yes, we can. I have tried to give you some identifying marks. It might be that you have questions tonight. And if there's anything that has been said that you don't understand, I would encourage you, come to me. Please come to me, and I'll do my best to explain what I've said. If you don't understand it, you can see one of the elders. I'm sure they'd be more than happy to talk to you, to try to answer your questions. Because listen, we're interested in truth. The only, the only thing that sets the church of Christ apart from the world is truth. People say, what, are the, what does the church of Christ have to offer people? Truth. Do we say that arrogantly? No. Caustically? Absolutely not. But if we're not going to preach and teach the truth of Almighty God then my advice is let's just close up shop, close the building down, and let's go home. It's either the truth or nothing. And I appreciate our elders for standing up for the truth of Almighty God and for their willingness to have the truth preached and taught regularly here. I can promise you there are a lot of places you can't preach the truth and stay. So, I close tonight asking this question. Are you a member of the church that we read about in the Bible? I want to ask you this. The church that you are a part of, is it in the yellow pages? If it is, is it in conflict with this book? If it's in conflict with what this book teaches, then my question to you is this. Are you going to stay in the church of the yellow pages? Or will you get in the church that you read about in the Bible? If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I urge you, I plead with you to come to Christ. Why not be baptized tonight? Wash away your sins, Acts 22, 16. And then just be faithful. And the assurance is the crown of life, Revelation 2, verse 10. If you're here tonight and you're not faithful to His cause, could we plead with you to come home? Come back to a loving God who will abundantly pardon as we stand and sing.